Good morning. It's good to see everyone out this morning. Thank you for being here. Uh, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Romans chapter 10. And then if you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's word, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 13 today. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says... Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text that you have allowed us to reach. We do pray for your grace uh, upon this time uh, by allowing your spirit to work uh, through me and in our hearts and minds. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see what you want us to see and hear what you want us to hear. May our hearts be not stubborn, Lord, to respond to what your word says. We pray that you would enlighten our minds uh, so that we may grasp what it is that, that Paul communicated so long ago under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Father, that if there's anything that might stand in the way that is unconfessed sin or wrong attitudes toward others, that you would bring that to mind and that we might confess that and ask you to pardon us at this moment. We desire to hear from you. May you receive the glory, honor, and praise. Would you work for your glory and for our good? We ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. I want to begin today's message by sharing a testimony from, that was captured in an article by Christianity, Christianity Today last year about this time in March by, from an astronomer named uh, David Block. I'm going to read, read it to you so you could hear him speak about his life in his own words. Uh, so I want to start off by sharing that. So David says this. He says, I grew up in a Jewish, as a Jewish boy in South African gold mining town known as Krugersdorp. I remember sitting in synagogue enthralled as our learned rabbi expounded how God was a personal God. He would speak to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and men to many others. Growing up, I often pondered how I fit into all this. By the time I entered the University of Witzwatersrand, Johannesburg, I was deeply concerned that I had no assurance that God was indeed a personal God. I was confident that he was a historical God, 
one who had delivered our people from the hands of Pharaoh. But he seemed so far removed from the particulars of my life. Where was the personality and the vibrancy of a God who could truly speak to me? I became friendly, friendly with the professor Lewis Hurst. He had great interest in astronomy, and we would discuss the complexities of the cosmos for hours at a time. I remember attending a meeting at the Royal Astronomical um, Society, graced by Stephen Hawking. And the atmosphere there was intellectually stimulating, but inwardly I could tell that something or someone was missing. To be brutally honest, I did not know God. Back in South Africa, my friendship with Professor Hurst grew, and I started sharing with him my thoughts and feelings about the cosmos. I said, the universe is so beautiful, both visually and mathematically. The idea of the universe being designed by a master artist continued to resonate with me, but I struggled to find evidence that this artist had any interest in knowing me personally. I shared further doubts. Are we, as Shakespeare in Macbeth, just a fleeting shadow that appears and then disappears? What is our reason for living? What is the purpose of life? Is it possible to have a personal encounter with the creator of the cosmos? Well, in our text today, I believe that Paul is going to answer this question in detail. And I'm going to seek to frame out his answers around two points. And I believe when we finish, we'll have the answer that David was searching for. Now, as we prepare to look at the verses that I've just read into your hearing, I want to remind you about a few ideas that are working in the background for Paul and thereby us as well. These ideas might be viewed as a scenic backdrop that sets up the foreground of what we'll be looking at displayed in our text. And we might think of this scenic backdrop in three panels, three panels. The first panel, we would find the pictures of humans sinning. Gentile sin, according to Paul, as he paints a vivid picture for us in Romans chapter 1. Let's go back. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge him or to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know that <clears throat> though they know that God's righteous decree that those who practice such, thing, such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. But Paul doesn't stop with the Gentiles. He goes on to explain that the Jews are likewise guilty because Jews sin as well. We saw this in Romans chapter 2. Paul writes, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? 
While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You abhor idols. Do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Excuse me. Because of you. So Paul then, after reviewing both Jews and Gentiles being sinners, he sums up the fate of humanity or his scope of it in chapter 3 with these simple words. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, as we hear those lists of sin, there might be one of two things on that list that you or I may be able to identify with from our past. For me, as I think about it, there's definitely things that jump out to me to give you a more tame illustration. I think back to my childhood and uh, just riding my bike around the neighborhood uh, when I was growing up during the summers. So my parents would go to work and we would uh, hang out with friends and ride our bikes during the day in Houston. And sometimes we would ride up to the corner store at the front of the neighborhood. Now, this seems harmless unless you consider the fact that my parents had strictly instructed us that when we rode our bikes to never leave our street. But there was always this temptation that we start off with our friends and because we wanted to be accepted by them, we would make our way to the end of the streets. And when one of them wanted to go to the store, we would inevitably find ourselves making that right at the end of the street, riding down to the end of the neighborhood, going if we had a little bit of money, buying some gum or candy, whatever it is that we wanted, and riding and making our way back home. Now, we would do this, and, we, and our parents really never found out because we would always do this while they were at work. And there was plenty of time to get to the store, hang out, look around, and make your way back home. Now, thankfully, I have no bad stories to tell you. Nothing bad happened. We weren't struck by lightning. No cars hit us. No one robbed us on the way to teach us a lesson about disobeying our parents. No, we just did it, and we got away with it. And one of the things that we noticed is that as we started doing it, it became easier to do it. But there is something that you have to keep in mind, which is this. Do our parents probably never found out God knew? And according to what Paul writes, God seems to take disobedience to parents extremely seriously. Now, you may think this is a pretty light thing, but just simply consider that Adam and Eve just ate fruit. And wasn't it God who said you should honor your father and mother? That would seem to fall into the category of obeying the commands that they have given you. See, what God's word does for us is helps us to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And what it also does for us is gives us a true picture of who we are so that we might see our need for righteousness on an individual level. That's panel one. In the second panel, Paul paints for us another picture. And in this panel, we would find a picture of where sin incurs divine wrath. Sin incurs divine wrath. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, as we walk through Romans 1, we discover that there's this present aspect of God's righteous uh, wrath or against unrighteousness of men that is being worked out in the world today. Now, there are different forms of that, but the one that Paul focuses on in our text is this idea of removal of restraint. The idea is of God taking down defenses. God gives people over to follow their hearts. Now, Disney might advise you to do that, but the Bible seems to think that that's a bad idea. 
because when we follow our hearts, one of the things that our hearts generally want is ungodly desires. Not only does he give us over to the ungodly desires, but also as a way of judgment, he might give us over to uh, wrong or what the scripture says is debased ways of thinking. These are bad patterns of thinking that cause us to reap negative consequences in our lives. But there's not just this present aspect of God's wrath being revealed in the world through giving people over to their desires and letting them have what they want and reaping those consequences as one of the ways of displaying his, his wrath. But there's this much larger concept for Paul that is very threatening for humanity in light of our current situations. And it has to do with this idea of judgment that will sweep up both the heavenly and earthly realms on this particular day. And so Paul talks about that. He, he brings this concept up in Romans chapter 2. He says, or he writes, uh, because, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be a wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. And so in Paul's mind, there's this day that's out there waiting to happen in which God has already chosen to deal with everyone, both heavenly and earthly, and to give everyone, to make everyone give an account. Uh, he talks about this clearly in his, his, well, I would say message or sermon to those who are in Athens as he dialogues with them. And he, he says this to them, just this excerpt. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. If you want to get a taste of how Paul sees this playing out, I would encourage you in your personal time to take a look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, somewhere between verses 5 and 12, and you'll get a, one of the pictures that Paul has in mind of what this day is going to look like. So in this second panel, the idea is that divine judgment is coming. And because of what he said in panel one, then we realize that people like to obey unrighteousness, which puts them in a place of divine wrath, which means that the only way to escape that is to have righteousness. And therein is the need of man, which brings us to our final panel that plays in the background. And that is that the Christ event has happened. The Christ event has happened. We pick up here in Paul's rights, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. For Paul, the, the, the turning of history is centered on the Christ event happening and that the end of the age had already broken into the current age with the coming, uh, the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this had changed how God was operating in the world. And that's why he sees things the way that he does. And this is why he brings out in this text that he's dealing with the issues that he is hoping to address as he talks about Israel. Now, if you're like me, you hold these ideas that Paul has laid out in these three panels and other, other writers attest to it as well, to be true about reality. And with that in mind, if we hold these things to be true, we can understand the sentiment that Paul expresses at the beginning of chapter 9 and chapter 10. At the beginning of 9, he wrote these words, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. At the beginning of chapter 10, he went on to say this as he dropped back to pick up this theme again. Brothers, and we might say sisters here as well, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. Paul is dealing with an issue that for all of us, if you have someone as a believer in your life whom you deeply care about that is in a state of unbelief as it relates to Jesus Christ, then you probably, like me, are deeply concerned and hope and pray that God would at some point save them. And Paul is coming from that same place as he thinks about the situation of those who are his people. He's concerned that in being in the state of unbelief, those three panels that are operating in the background are going to work to their disadvantage. So this week we pick up where Pastor Mike left us off last week and where Paul explores what he means by what he said at the end of verse 4, this righteousness that comes to everyone who believes. So in verses 5 through 8, this is my first point that I'll frame it around is this. Faith is the only way to receive righteousness. Faith is the only way to receive righteousness. Now, to bring this idea to the fore, Paul is going to cite three Old Testament texts. They are Leviticus 18.5, Deuteronomy 9.4, then Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 through 14. And by doing that, he draws this contrast between what he labels as a righteousness that is based on the law and a righteousness that is based on faith. Now, we know from previous messages that whenever Paul begins to cite, and he does a lot in these three chapters of the Old Testament, we enter into some extremely complex issues that require resolving on our end of the spectrum because we're not back in the culture in that time or even in that language to be able to, to readily grab some of the things that go without saying. I'm not going to try to detail those issues today. I'm simply going to try to seek to explain the kind of outworking of that and what I have gleaned from others as what Paul is doing in this text. So as I said before, Paul is addressing the unbelief of his people here at Jews, or he calls them Israelites as well, drawing in this broader concept, who he perceives to some degree are seeking to follow the Mosaic law as a means of attaining righteousness with God or remaining in right relationship with God instead of embracing the Messiah who has appeared in the Christ event by faith. 
Now, Dr. Moose sums up the context of Leviticus 18.5 for us in this sentence when he writes, In its context, Leviticus 18.5 summons Israel to obedience to the commandments of the Lord as a means of prolonging her enjoyment of blessings of God in the promised land. So in its original context, Leviticus 18.5 is talking about this promise of life for Israel when they enter the land of Canaan. That things will go well with them, that they'll be blessed, that life will be long, that they will enjoy life. Just very physical things about enjoying life in the land if they're willing to obey God. Now, Dr. Bird draws into some of the historical aspects of this of how over time this idea of this promise of life in the land got to be connected to the idea of what we would consider to be uh, life in the age to come, or we might say it as eternal life. He writes, the Israelites were to obey the law, and by obeying the law, they preserved life under the covenant. While evangelicals might be aghast at the prospect of God commanding obedience as a condition for life, no such distaste was shared by Jewish authors who earnestly believed that the law was actually quite doable. And even the pre-Christian Paul himself thought so. Take reference to Philippians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. For Ben Sirach, Torah was a life, a law of life, in that keeping Torah was both a way of life and a way to life. And so the promise in Leviticus 18.5 about doing these things and receiving life was thought to set out the conditions for preserving temporal life under the covenant and for receiving eschatological, eschatological life in the future. For Paul and for many Jews, Leviticus 18 was a summary of the entire law. It was the John 3.16 of Second Temple Judaism. So that there was somewhere in this connection of history that some saw this connection between the promise of life in Leviticus 18.5 and this eschatological life and how the law was in some way connected to that and keeping the law would lead to that in life in the future. Now, it's Dr. Schreiner here who lays out the view that shows where the problem comes up, and I'm going to borrow and explain his view of framing out why Paul, in light of the Christ event, sees that there's a problem with the Jews remaining under the law and no longer adhering and not adhering to Christ. Now, others have raised the same issue with different nuances in their views of what he's getting at here, but I'm going to use his view to kind of set the table and get at the point. So let me do my best to seek to explain this complex idea. So under the Mosaic Covenant, perfect obedience was not to be expected or was not expected from, by God. How do we know this? We know this because there is the sacrificial system with the, which the book of Leviticus details for us. The concept was that there was things that were expected by the covenant, and there was also this expectation that if you fail to meet certain things, you were expected to offer certain sacrifices that would cover that so that you could be offered forgiveness of sin and be restored to right relationship with God, and that way you would remain in right standing with God. And this was all to be done through faith, because your faith was demonstrated by living in obedience to the covenant. But after Christ's coming, life, death, and resurrection, as Paul sees it, the ages had changed. As Paul stated at the end of verse 4, Christ brought an end to the law from the standpoint of temporally, that is a time standpoint, as well as a 
fulfillment standpoint. Let me borrow Dr. Moo's illustration here to maybe get our minds wrapped around that. He says, picture in your mind a race, and that race has a finish line. And that finish line serves two purposes. One, it marks that you have reached the end of the race. The race is over. But also, when you're running the race, the finish line is the goal to which you're trying to attain. In a similar way, Christ serves both purposes. He marks the end of the old covenant, that it has come to a proper end. It's done with. God is not operating that way anymore. But it's also the, which, the goal to which the law was pointing and was seeking to attain. And that is summed up in Christ. So he marks both the end and the fulfillment or the goal of the law. And by Christ offering himself, as we see laid out in the book of Hebrews, Jesus had offered the final and perfect sacrifice to which all the other sacrifices had been a, just a shadow and pointing to. And when his sacrifice was offered, there are no more sacrifices to be offered. All Old, all Old Testament sacrifices have become invalid for atoning for sin. Because by Christ's sacrifice, he closed off the old covenant and opened up the new covenant. Now that God has brought an end to the Mosaic covenant through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this causes a problem from anyone who might try the old way to find righteousness through Torah observance. By going back to the law and trying to do that post the Christ event, Christ coming into the world, a person now in Paul's mind would theoretically have to keep the law perfectly because the grace that was once offered under the Old Testament to cover when you fail is no longer present because the new covenant has come and the new sacrifice has been offered. And so to go back under the old covenant would mean you would have to keep the law perfectly because if you violate the law, there is no forgiveness. And now you bring upon yourself only the curses because the only sacrifice that God is accepting is what Christ has done. Now, the problem that we know that Paul has already raised in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 7 is that humans are under the domination of sin. And in chapter 7, he pictures it almost like a slave master that has authority, like a foreign power that has taken up residence in us and causes us not to be able to fulfill what the law demands. And so if anyone wants to seek to operate under the old way, you're always going to be doomed to fail because sin gets the upper hand. And in your human power, you don't have the ability, nor do I, to overcome it. And thus you only bring curses upon yourself, and the law only brings death. So Paul says, this is the problem. This is why trying to operate under the law for righteousness will always fail. Dr. Sherwood sums it up this way. He says, post the Christ event, God no longer responds to Torah observance as a relational trust in him. Now Torah observance is just Torah observance. Now attaining righteousness in life by way of Torah observance requires the perfect obedience that a surface reading of Leviticus 18.5 would seem to suggest, since God is no longer there to make up the difference. Now, Paul contrasts this law that comes or is based on I mean, this righteousness that's based on law with righteousness that is based on faith. If you look back at your Bible, you'll notice in verse 6 that he treats righteousness like a person. 
He says that righteousness by faith speaks to us. It, it has a message that it wants to communicate, and it communicates it through a negative and positive element in the text. We'll start off with the negative element. He starts off by quoting a partial, partially from Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4. And if we were to look back at the context, if you've not read that recently in your devotional time within God as you're working your way through the Bible, let me just remind you of the context here. The main point of what Jesus, what God is getting at is to remind the people that, hey, when you get into the land, I don't want you to adopt a self-righteous attitude and think that it was because of your righteousness, be that outward or inward righteousness, that you've made it into the land by your own righteousness. No, the only reason you've made it in is not because of your righteousness. And I didn't do this because you were righteous. I did this for you because of my faithfulness to my promises to the patriarchs. And thus, this sets the table for the righteousness of faith to remind us as well that what God has done in saving us is not because of our own righteousness, but it's because of his own faithfulness to his own promises. Now, Paul goes on to share the rest of the message that the righteousness based on, based on faith has for us, but he switches text and he jumps to the end of Deuteronomy and he jumps to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Let me draw upon Dr. Mu again to give us some contextual insight here in a summarized form. He writes of Deuteronomy 30, Moses' purpose is to prevent the Israelites from evading responsibility for doing the will of God by pleading that they do not know it. Now, if you were to take these two texts and compare them as with the other ones, you're going to notice that Paul does some interesting things here. He omits certain things from the text. Any references to doing anything, he takes that out. Any references to the laws, he takes that, a lot, takes that out and instead gives his own commentary on how these things apply to what has been done in the work of Christ. One of the things you'll also notice in the text is he uh, substitute the word see with the word abyss, overlapping these concepts, which were almost synonyms in the Old Testament mindset. But here abyss serves to be a reference to an allusion to the netherworld pointing to, to Christ's death. Uh, and so he's going to, to bring that out. But what's up with all this ascending, ascending, descending language and this mouth and heart language? Well, Dr. Bird explains it this way in its original context for ancient Israel. For them, it meant the commands are not too onerous for the people, akin to ascending to the heights of heaven to retrieve them or else journeying across the sea to obtain them. Instead, the word of the law is in close proximity to the people, and the result is it is obeyable. Now, Dr. Moo gives us what this means in light of the post-Christ event and how these, this text applies to those who are post-Christ event as the righteousness by faith speaks to us. He says the best explanation for Paul's use of Deuteronomy 30 is to think that he finds in this passage an expression of the grace of God and establishing a relationship with his people. As God brought his word near to Israel so that they, that they might know and obey him, so God now brings his word near both to Jews and Gentiles that they may know him through his son, Jesus Christ, and respond in faith and obedience. Because Christ, rather than the law, is now the focus of God's revelatory word, which he places in the text, Paul can replace the commandment of Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14, with Christ. Dr. Berg closes out the thought with this. Paul is delving into the story of Deuteronomy 30 and declaring that Israel's exile described in Deuteronomy 30 has ended, and that is with the Christ event, and the appropriate response is not 
law observance, but faith or messianic faith, faith in the Messiah. Now, I realize all of what I said can get a bit complicated and you may not have tracked with me through all of that. So let me try to share it in a more simple way uh, for people like myself. I'm going to borrow a picture from the Bible Project, which I think captures what Paul is saying here. And I would simply put it like this. In the past, God revealed himself through the law and operated on that system with his people. But now that Jesus has come, God has revealed himself through Jesus, and he's no longer supporting that old operating system. So anyone who wants to be in relationship with him has to come under the new operating system, which is faith in Jesus. And we don't need to try to do any superhuman faiths to bring God close and to know what his will is, because God has already accomplished that through the work of Christ. He's already done what is necessary, and he has brought his message clear, which is being proclaimed by the apostles in what he labels here as the word of faith. What might this imply for us? Well, we can either try to find righteousness on our own or accept God's gift. If you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, maybe you're warm. God is drawing you. You're interested in the things of God. You're not yet sure about Jesus. I would ask you to consider this question. If you're not getting your righteousness from Jesus, then where are you getting it from? In light of the three panels that I painted, if you accept those to be true, then we're going to all face God. And as I'm pointing out at the beginning of this message, because of the, if you found yourself anywhere in those lists or re- re- rehearsing anything that has happened in your life, then you know that you, like others, have lived in unrighteousness, which means that you're in need of righteousness if you want to have a peaceful encounter with God in light of the panels that were listed. And so if you're not taking God's gift for righteousness, then where are you going to get it from? As believers, these these truths remind us that our righteousness has been gifted to us by God. Think back to Romans chapter 4 and the argument that Paul makes there. And I would say meditating on this truth can help us address what can often be a subtle but deadly sin, pride, that sometimes arises in our hearts. I don't know if you remember the story of Hezekiah. Hezekiah had been a good king, and he had come to a point in his life where he had contracted an illness and he was going to die, and God had graciously granted to him life. And after that, pride arose in his heart and Hezekiah made some decisions that would later cause others great pain. Pride can even show up in our hearts for those who have sought in the past to live lives for God. In an article by the Gospel Coalition, one writer suggested these are some of the ways that pride shows up in our life. Sometimes it shows up in fear. Sometimes it shows up in the form of entitlement. Sometimes it shows up in the form of ingratitude. Sometimes it shows up in the form of people-pleasing. Sometimes it shows up in the form of hypocrisy. And sometimes it shows up in the form of straight-out rebellion. In a 2010 Newsweek column, golfer Tiger Woods candidly recounted his life. And in doing so, he mentions one of the other fruits of pride that may show up in our life, self-reliance. Tiger Woods says or writes, golf is a self-centered game in ways good and bad. So much depends on one's own abilities, but for me, that self-reliance made me think that I could tackle the world by myself. It made me think that if I was successful in golf, then I was invincible. Now, I know that no matter how tough or strong we are, we all need to rely on others. 
See, any progress that we make, spiritually speaking, or any other, if we might say that, in our journeys with God is simply because of the grace of God. And when we face the temptation to begin to rely on ourselves to live out the Christian life, this text reminds us that the Christian life is not to be lived in reliance upon oneself, but reliance upon God. The Christian journey is a faith journey. As the scriptures repeatedly testify, the just shall live by faith. This brings me to my second point of the text in which I want to frame it around, which is this. Faith has to be in the person and work of Jesus Christ for salvation. Faith has to be in the person and work of Jesus Christ for salvation. Paul laid this out in verses 9 to 13. Let's go back and reread those. It's, it's been a few minutes just to remind you of what he said there. He writes, but if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul in these verses now describes what he meant by the word of faith. That is that he says we, he and the other apostles and those who believe in Jesus were proclaiming and hopefully that we proclaim as well today. And in doing so, he lays out what is the object of faith and what should be the outworking of faith that ends in salvation. Now, Paul, what Paul does here because of the way that they like to, to do in scripture interpretation is he's going to pick up the words from the text he's just cited. The words mouth and heart were in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 14. And he's going to frame things for the Christian life around those two concepts that he's just quoted from scripture. And he's going to invest them with Christian meaning. Dr. Berg gives insight here as to what Paul is getting at. He says a Christian is someone who professes to live under submission to the king, to King Jesus, and believes that God has acted in Jesus to usher in the age to come. See, as Christians, we have a firm conviction inwardly that God has demonstrated the end time power in history right now by giving everlasting life to Jesus who had been crucified and lay dead in a tomb. And this Jesus who now lives forevermore, never to die again, this Jesus is Lord. Now, in light of the context, this has perhaps some political implications in light of the historical situation. As Dr. Bird notes, one can find inscriptions in papyri and ostraca all attesting to during that time writing into Rome that Nero is Lord. Even the grandiose claim that Nero is Lord of the entire world. So around them, while others were looking to worldly rulers for salvation, Christians were looking to Jesus for salvation and only to him. If you look at the verses 9, 10, and 13, you'll notice in those verses that salvation is brought up by Paul in relationship to this believing and confessing. That faith is in Jesus and that results in righteousness, which Paul has raised earlier, and salvation. Now here, if you're noticing the text, but in 9 and 13, these ideas of salvation are 
pictured as, excuse me, as future ideas or concepts. Now, people have different disagreement about that. They're not sure whether Paul is here referring to, as he has in mind, the divine day of judgment, because of, of, in the text, they notice the future is also there of when he says, will not be ashamed. Perhaps Paul has in mind here salvation in the final day sense, that on the day of judgment, you will be saved by Christ. There are others who see this future idea as more of a logical concept. Here, thinking more of the justification concept that Paul raises early in the letter, or some see it as referring to the whole concept. It might refer to all of it or anyone in between. But we know that what Paul's main point is that faith in Jesus alone is the way by which salvation comes to human beings. But what's going on with this confession concept? Well, a true confession gives evidence of an inward change. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces fruit, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Whatever is in your heart, we're here we're talking about your internal world, your internal life, your motives, your emotions, your feelings, your will, your thoughts. Whatever is in there will eventually come out of your mouth. And if Jesus is on the inside and faith in him that God has raised him from the dead and that Jesus is Lord, at some point in your life, that will work its way out in what you confess to others. But Paul gives us insight into this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he says the only way that this is possible to make it be a true confession, to reflect what's inwardly happened to a person is because the spirit has worked in a person. And it is only by the spirit's work in a person that the confession that Jesus is Lord might be a true confession. And to those who make the true confession, Paul gives this assurance by quoting from Isaiah 28, 16. He says that everyone who has faith in Christ will not be ashamed. Here, most likely looking forward to the day of judgment. You will be declared blameless on that day, not because of your own righteousness, Deuteronomy 9, but because of Christ's righteousness. There are a couple of other things that I want to mention in this text before we close out and leave the text. In verses 12 and 13, Paul draws down on this idea of everyone that he picks up from the concept, the quote of Isaiah, chapter 28, verse 16, to show how the door is open for salvation to the Gentiles. He writes in verse 12 that Jesus is Lord of all. Here he means he rules over all people, both Jews and Greeks and any others that you might want to name from people groups. And as Lord of all, notice in the text he says, he bestows generously his wealth, here wealth referring to his mercy and salvation on everyone who calls upon him in faith. As Dr. Cranfield and both Dr. Moo note, uh, in secular Greek, this calling upon had the idea of asking someone for assistance and especially asking a god or the gods for help and intervention. Here in the New Testament, the concept is making appeal to Christ for mercy and favor. To drive home this point of this inclusiveness, this idea of all or everyone in verse 13 at the beginning, Paul inserts in front of the quote that already has this idea in it, another everyone, to double down on the concept that everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ will receive from him mercy and be saved. Now, the structure of the verse, he pictures it here, is everyone who's calling presently and everyone who might call upon him in the future. 
will receive salvation. This salvation that Jesus offers is for all Jews and Gentiles who believe. Lastly, one last thing is we see here Paul asserts the deity of Christ in his last part as he quotes from Joel chapter 2, verse 32. There, if you look at it in its original context, it rever- the word Lord refers to the divine name. But here, Jesus, um, Paul uses Jesus in its place. And by doing that, he's letting us know that he views Jesus as divine, as God. And thus, this is the reason why faith in the person and work of Jesus is the only way to be saved. Implications here. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, let me encourage you to borrow the words of Paul. Call upon the Lord for mercy and you will be saved. He is rich in mercy, willing to bestow his riches upon you for those who believe. Now you might question, well, what about my sins? The emphasis here is that his mercies are so great that they're greater than any sin that you might have. Now for the believer, Dr. Grant Osborne in commenting upon the calling upon us draws a broader view of this calling upon when he writes, however, it should be not narrowed to prayer, but includes prayer, worship, and a general dependence on Christ for grace and mercy in every area of life. If we recall what Hebrews 4.16 encourages believers to do, it says that believers ought to seek Christ in a time of need to receive mercy and grace. Even as we, after we've come to Christ and received mercy in the form of salvation, we continue to need mercy from the Lord in times of need. We continue to need to call upon him, even as believers. Let me close by giving you the final part of the story from David Block as he shares his testimony. He says, Professor Hurst uh, met with him intently and listened to him. And Professor Hurst said to him, There is an answer to all of your questions you're asking, and I'm well aware that you are an Orthodox Jewish family. But would would you be willing to meet with a dear friend of mine, the Reverend John Spiker? Well, my Jewish parents had taught me to seek answers wherever they might be found, so I consented to meet with a Christian minister. Taking the Bibles in his hand, Reverend Spiker turned to Romans 9, 33, where Paul affirms that Yeshua is a stumbling block to the Jewish people, but to those who had chose to believe in him, they would never be ashamed. By divine grace, suddenly everything became perfectly clear. Yeshua, Jesus, was the stumbling stone, my stumbling stone. Jesus had fulfilled all the messianic prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures, where the Messiah would be born, how he was to die, and much else besides. And while most Jewish people today are still awaiting the Messiah's coming, I knew I had found him and that all I had to do was respond to his offer of grace. Immediately, I asked Spiker to pray for me, which he did, and on that day at age 22, I surrendered my heart and my reason to Christ Jesus, and his spirit spread through every cell of my being. And becoming a Christian had a profound effect on my career in astronomy. Reflecting on those days, I realized that they had been infused by God's grace. He had been planting spiritual seeds every time I gazed up into the heavens. And I still marvel that a God so majestic and so powerful would know my name and love me as intimately as his only begotten son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word that we are reminded that faith comes through righteousness. 
and not through human effort. Even in seeking to attain to the law because we'll never be able to fulfill what the law demands without aid from the Spirit. Because sin dominates us so much. And we thank, we're so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus. And now he has become the object of faith. And that it is through him that we receive, we are gifted with righteousness. And so we do pray, Lord, that you would help us to live from that place, a place of faith. May ours be a walk of faith. Even now, as we prepare to give this offering, Lord, we give it in faith. Trusting that you will continue to provide for our needs that you have, as you have already done, taken care of us up until this point in life. And we have benefited from your kindness and grace, the riches of your mercy. I pray that you would bless everyone who gives, whether in this offering or if they've already given earlier by some other means. And for those who have the desire to honor you in this way, would you bless them as well? We ask these things in Jesus' precious name.